This morning's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. This is God's word. Good morning, and uh, if you're new or visiting Metro Presbyterian Church, I want to welcome you here and encourage you to take some time. We are starting our community groups as Kevin mentioned earlier, uh, a week after, uh, well, the week of Labor Day. And so a great opportunity to plug into our community. And, and we've grown into just a, a wonderful community. Um, we just celebrated, uh, we didn't really celebrate, our third year anniversary. And um, really just feel uh, uh, it's been a blessed time. And thankful for everybody who's here walking with us. You know, we're a young church. We're a very young church. I'm a very young pastor. And uh, with that comes a lot of inexperience, and with that comes a lot of learning. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of walking together and a long journey to do together. And so if you're looking for a church or if you've already plugged in here, um, we want to welcome you here. Um, It's a church that really uh, is, is founded on recognizing and knowing that we are all incredibly sinful and uh, not, in, not excluding those who are up here at the pulpit. And so we desperately need uh, one another to grow and lead together. So welcome you and uh, being a part of this and being able to walk with us in this. Um, we're closing out a series today and we're going to be starting a new series next week. And we're closing out the series. The series is called Dining with the King. And uh, it's fitting uh, that we're closing it out with the last book of the Bible. It's a book that's rarely preached on from beginning to end because if you re- look at it from one angle, it's an, it's an incredibly confusing uh, book. But I want to kind of set the stage for you. All the Bible, the entire Bible, is really about three themes. Creation, fall, redemption. 
Four themes. If you had a fourth one, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's, that's really the entire story of uh, the Bible. And the book of Revelation is about, if you watch a good movie, a good movie has uh, a very simple beginning, a complex plot line that has got lots of loose ends that eventually come and get wrapped up at the end. And at one moment, everything kind of wraps up over the course of the last moments of the movie, and you see all the loose ends being tied up. And Revelation is really that book. Uh, it's about tying up all the plot lines, all the loose ends, a perfectly told story that gets tied up at the end. And so what you're seeing in Revelation is the end of the story, the end of the journey. It ties everything up. All the plot lines of the Bible, all the plot lines of human history, all the plot lines really of your life. And that's why it's so important that we read this book. And the, the end of the story is this. If you want to resolve it, you can find your resolution in Christ, in Jesus Christ. That's the book, the entire story. The book of Revelation, it's called, it's apocalyptic literature. That's the, that's the actual, um, I guess, technical way of calling the book of Revelation. Um, it's the only book of its kind. So it, is, it can be a little confusing. But we're going to try to unravel a little bit without going into the whole book. There's a strange vision of this marriage supper of the Lamb in, this, in chapter 19. And uh, we're going to kind of unravel uh, the strange vision, revelation, lots of images. You have to kind of sift through the images, find the key elements, and unravel those images. And those images help to tie up all the loose ends of the Bible. That's really how you look at it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three, three characters. Um, and uh, these three characters are our three points today. It's a wrapping up of all of history, and it tells the entire story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. First, you have the prostitute. Then you have the lamb. And then you have the bride. You could probably throw in a few other images there, but we're going to focus on the prostitute, the lamb, and the bride. The prostitute's going to tell us what's wrong with us. The lamb's going to tell us what's going to cure it. And the bride's going to tell us what we can be, who we are. And so uh, it's going to show us the significance and the beauty of Jesus Christ and what we can have through him. So first, we're going to talk about the very beginning of this um, as our condition, the human condition, uh, what's wrong with us, and that's the prostitute. The text says, he condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by adulteries. Now, in order to understand what the author, John, is talking about, we need to go back into Revelation 18 and in Revelation 18, you understand, um, uh, you're given this description of the city of Babylon, and the city of Babylon is called the great prostitute. So that's who, that's who John's talking about. Babylon represents what? Our society. Human society without God. It's violent. It's oppressive. It's corruption. It's It's sin. And, and basically what John is saying is this is a picture of human society without God. It's man against man at the very base nature. If you're an evolutionist and you say, oh, well, I believe that, um, you know, I don't really believe in God, but I believe in natural selection. What's natural selection? It's basically man against man. It's survival of the fittest, which means that it's a world and a history filled with corruption and cruelty and violence. And actually, if you're a true evolutionist, you have to believe in it. You have to say that this is the natural order and that is how we begin and that is how we will end and that's it, which means that you have to condone violence. You have to condone cruelty. You have to condone uh, that kind of brokenness. In verse 2, we're saying that all cruelty, all violence, all injustice, it's described here, the very nature of it is, a prostitute's adultery. 
all sin is described as adultery. It's really one of the great themes of the whole Bible. And so from beginning to end, we hear God continually saying, and I'm going to kind of sum up everything that he says from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Mainly what he says is this, I want to relate with my people. I don't want to relate with them just like a king suppresses his people, his subjects. I don't want to relate with my people the way a shepherd, just the way a shepherd or merely the way a shepherd relates with sheep. I want to, you know, I am a king. I am a shepherd. But I want a relationship with you in such a way um, described as a husband who loves his wife. Now, I have to think about this. What does it mean to have a wife? What does it mean to have a husband? Even if you're a parent with a child, with a little child, a parent, the very nature of a parent is whenever he or she wants, he can see his child naked. Right? You've got to change his diapers. You've got to give him a bath. You get to see the child naked. The child, however, doesn't get to choose when to see you naked. Even in the most intimate relationship, a parent and a child, that duality and mutuality doesn't exist. Only in the case of a husband and a wife can two people be absolutely exposed, absolutely naked before each other, absolutely vulnerable with each other. Only in marriage is there that, and yet there's freedom. An assurance that we really know each other, and I want to know each other. You see all the flaws. You see all the brokenness, and yet I want to know you. I'm naked in every aspect. Only in marriage can you see that and say, I absolutely love you. I absolutely care for you. I, I, we love each other to such a degree, it's impossible anywhere else. Now, in any other type of relationship, here we see a prostitute. A prostitute's relationship with a person is not like that. And the prostitute relationship represents any other type of relationship because in any other relationship, there's an out. Even your child will one day have an out. Even your child will one day say, you know what, I can distance myself from you. Only in marriage is there an institution that cannot be broken, that should not and cannot be broken. So if you look at any other relationship, whether you're dating a person, there's an out. You have a job and you say, I'm committed, you start out, I'm committed to this job, I love this job, there's an out. You can say, I love this career, this career is for me. Later on, you can say, you know what, I changed my mind, there's an out. You can be engaged to somebody and yet there's an out, right? In fact, the very reason why we, in our culture today, there's a lot of cohabitation. There are people who are living together who are not married. And one of the primary reasons why, you know, for years and for centuries, the church says, no, you cannot do this because only in in marriage is there that type of institution. The very reason for that is what? Because there's an out. There's always an out. Your word is never enough. There will always be an out, not even as a parent. But really, God is saying, if you really understand that, God is saying something incredibly audacious here. Because what he's saying is the relationship that I want with you and the relationship that you were designed for, there is no out. You don't get an out and I don't get an out. We are faithfully committed to each other to the end. Once you accept that, once you accept that reality, that truth, then it's going to tell you something about sin. It's going to kind of give you a very good picture of what sin is, the nature of sin, and no other image, no other relationship but a husband and a wife can really explain that. In other words, unless you understand that 
um, this is the aspect of, of the type of relationship that God wants for you and with you. Now, unless you understand that, that God doesn't want you to just be your king or your shepherd, but he wants to be your lover. He wants to be your spouse. There are some things you'll never understand about sin. That's really what I'm trying to say. There's something you'll never understand about sin unless you look at it in this image. This is why the Bible always calls sin adultery. Always calls sin adultery. It's, it's a, one of the primary themes in the Bible. And through this text, you're going to see really uh, two things about sin and the problem with us. First, what sin is. Sin prostitute, is to love anything else more than God, giving anything, um, how do I say this, giving the most intimate part of your heart to anything else other than to God, making anything more central in your life than God. And as a result, God says, that's adultery. That's sin. Because what God is saying is, I don't want you to just obey me as king. That's not what I'm going for here. I don't want you to just rely on me as your shepherd. That's not what I'm going for. I want you to love me supremely as I have supremely loved you. And I've proven that love. If you love anything more than God, it's sin. So all the brokenness in the world and all the things, all the acts of sin in the world come from loving something more than me. The sin is loving something more than me, greater than me. And it's adultery. There's this proverb. And without really going into teaching the proverb, without, there's this proverb in the Bible, um, and it's a little bit graphic. But really what God is doing is he's calling people out on adultery. And the imagery he uses is very crass because what he says is, you have spread your legs to everything else, to all these other men. That's the image that he uses. Now, let me push a little bit on this. You know, imagine um, there's a, a woman, somebody's wife, um, and she goes to her husband, and she sees her husband, and her husband is carousing every night, spending, uh, coming home late, coming home the next morning, spending every night over at another woman's house, a different woman every night. And there it's, he's, he's sharing himself sexually and he's sharing himself emotionally and he's sharing himself uh, and, and, and uh, financially and he's taking these long trips around the world with, this, with these other women, uh, spending nights in bed together, engaging in activities together, sharing in intimacies together and it's every night. So the f- wife says, no, this is not good. Finally, the wife confronts this man and he says, uh, and, and the man and it starts explaining, you know, I don't like the fact that you're carousing. I don't like the fact that, you know, every night there's a different woman and you're spending yourself physically and, your, and emotionally and financially with this person, these people. And the man, what if the man were to come back to her and say, well, I, don't, I really don't get why you're upset. I really don't understand why you're upset. Because we signed some paperwork, right? In front of witnesses, right? We're married. What's the deal here? I mean, don't I pay the mortgage? Don't I work for us? I mean, don't you share my name? I mean, you have my money, you know, I do my duty. I do all the chores that you ask me to do. Every day, you give me a list, and I accomplish that list. What's the problem? What's the wife going to say? Now, come on, you know this is a ridiculous story. What's the wife going to say? You know what the wife's going to say. The wife's going to say, no, I get the fact that you share these things. But I don't have your heart. I don't have your heart. And if I, you can, you can give me those things, but if I don't have your heart, what kind of a relationship is this? What kind of a marriage is this? That I can have all these other things, but if I don't have your heart, and as a result, I don't have you physically, 
I don't have you emotionally. If I don't have these things, and all these other women have that, if I don't have the deepest affection, your deepest love, now you're saying, well, what kind of man would say that anyways? Now think about this. You're going to say, this is ridiculous. What a ridiculous story, right? I mean, how, who does that? Do you go to church? Of course you go to church. You're here with me. Have you been baptized? Have you taken communion in your life before? Have you prayed to God before? Have you ever told people, I believe, I really believe? Will you pray for me? I'm trying to obey. You've taken on God's name legally. And yet, there's something else that actually has your deepest affection. You've taken on God's name for yourself. And yet, other things have your deepest affection. Something, there's something else that you're really living for. There's something else that's captured your heart. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your family. None of those things are bad things. That's the problem. John Calvin says it's not so much the bad things that make us not a Christian. It's the good things that, make, that become more important than God. It's not so much that we're given into bad things, but we're too given into the good things. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a romantic interest. Maybe it's this political cause that you're really fighting for. Maybe it's a social cause. Something that really gets you and you love it supremely. It defines who you are. Would you be devastated if you lose it? That's how you know. If you lose it, would you be devastated? Do your nightmares revolve around these things? Do you love it supremely? In other words, you've given God your name and maybe you've given him some money and maybe you've, you do some service, you do some chores, but something else has your deepest affections. Is that you? Do you expect God to overlook that? Do you expect the Lord to overlook that? The Archbishop William Temple, he says, if you really want to know who your God is, look and see what you do with your solitude. Great wisdom. Look and see what you do with your solitude. What's solitude? Let's unpack the word solitude. Let's, you know, let's say you're you know, mowing the lawn. You're mowing your lawn. Or let's say um, you're just uh, riding in a cab. You know, 30, 45 minute trip. Let's say you're um, just sitting out on a porch or your veranda, you know. Do we ever do that these days? But let's say you're sitting out and you've got a glass of wine and you're just looking out, looking at the scenery. The thing that easily grabs your attention the most, where your heart naturally gravitates when there's nothing else going on in your life, where you don't have to think about anything else, where you don't have to focus on anything else, the thing that naturally grabs your attention, that is your God. That's what the Archbishop William Temple is saying, where your mind naturally goes. Is it God and his grace and his glory and, your, and his work? Usually it's other things. Usually other things have our preoccupations. You know that. Usually it's about you and your glory and, and your forgiveness and your work. Whatever it is, that's your real spiritual spouse. Now, another test is, where do you spend your money most effortlessly? Where is it most effortless to spend your money? We always spend money most effortly, effortlessly where our heart resides. Jesus said that. Jesus said, you know, that's where your treasure is. You know, that's, that's your heart. That's what he said. Where your money is, there's your heart. Are you getting that? The nature of sin. Sin is not just breaking rules. 
It's loving anything more than God. Now, what does it do? This is the part. What does sin actually do? These are there are two things we said we learn about sin. Um, by this image of the prostitute, what does sin do? Sin doesn't just, it's not just about breaking rules. It's breaking God's heart. Because God is saying, I'm your husband. There's no way you can get any idea about the seriousness of sin in our lives unless you think about sin through the lens of this image. You have to look at what God wants from you. And that's his heart. You have to look at your design, how God has built you and created you, what he wants from you, what he wants for you. If God was only a king, then when you sin, you've broken rules, you will face justice. But if you've given God your heart and he's given you his heart and he wants your love and, you, and you, you've acknowledged that, you want his love and he's given you his love, and if, if he's loved you supremely in all kinds of ways, and he says, I'm pouring out abundantly my love for you, sin is breaking his heart. Sin is trampling on his heart. It's not just about the rules. You know, my mother, uh, and I don't like to tell a lot of personal stories up front because, you know, it, it skews people's view of the actual preacher in one way or another, and that's not my goal here. But let me tell you a, little, a brief, brief story. Uh, just a childhood memory. My, my mother, when my father died, my father died tragically. Um, and uh, my mother, for a long time after my father had passed away, had kept pictures of our family, including my father, in our house, all over the house. There were pictures of my father holding me or my, fi- my father holding my brother, and um, pictures all over the house. At one point, one night, I walked into her bedroom and I happened to catch her putting away the pictures, taking pictures out of these you know, places in the wall or on the piano. And really, um, she, would, she was basically storing them away, putting them away. And it struck me. I was very young. It struck me. And I said, what are you doing? And my mother was saying, basically, every time I see these pictures, I'm reliving the tragedy. I've been reliving the pain of losing your father. It's been painful. And she just felt like she had to put it away, at least bury the pain. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that with you. You know, we can understand why we do that. But God doesn't do that with you. He doesn't put your picture away. He sees you. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so every day, he has to live with the pain. He has to relive the pain of the separation with his people. Every day, he has to relive the pain of losing you. Every moment, he relives the pain of losing you. There's a book um, uh, called Of of Human Bondage, uh, a very, very progressive book in its day, written by Somerset Maugham, which really captures uh, a picture in some ways. Uh, One of the motifs of it is this man who's married. uh, Actually, he's not married. He's in love with a prostitute. And so by nature, here's this man who's in love with a prostitute. He's, the prostitute is sick. The man is taking care of her and loving on her and just, just really just pouring out his affection on her. But the next morning he wakes up, she's gone. And she won't return for months. And he is broken by that. And months later, he finds her out in a street corner and she is just destitute. So what does he do? He brings her back in. Sometimes she's abused by people. He brings her back in. He takes care of her and loves her, right? And then next morning, she's gone. And she stays for a while. She's gone after a while. 
And you see this repeated cycle of this prostitution and the behavior of this prostitute and this man. And it's a very, very sordid and sad novel. But in, in this book, what we see is that God, in, if, you, if you can ex- experience the pain of that man, God, in fact, in, in several books in the Bible and all through says, that is my relationship with you. Every day I'm reliving the pain of sin. I don't put the picture away. There's this cruelty in disobeying God. It's not just about breaking rules, it's about breaking his heart. So when you see a prostitute, when you see this prostitute, you're seeing the history of the human race, and you're seeing the nature of our affections and our attractions. And, and mainly what we're seeing is that we're putting ourselves in the arms of other things besides God, and we're intimate with these things, and we're sleeping with these things. And, and these things are not committed to us. We've committed ourselves to them, but over time we're going to lose them or over time they're going to corrode or the relationship is going to break or something happens because little by little we're corroding. And God says that is not what you were designed for, but every day you're giving yourself to these things. And these things, though they are good, they're not meant to be ultimate in your life. You've got this two-ton bridge, you know, where cars that are two tons and under will, can cross through, but you drive a Mack truck over, what happens? It's going to collapse. He's saying, that's what you're doing. You're putting all of your weight on things that are not meant to carry that weight, and it's going to collapse, and it's going to break you, and it's going to destroy you, and that's why I'm saying the only bridge that you can cross that can hold you, all of you, is me, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what you were designed for, by the way. It's the design, that's creation, but then there's the fall, and it's the sin. That's what he's saying. It's one thing to be really close friends with somebody who's not your spouse. It's another thing to go to bed with that person, right? Um, It changes the relationship altogether. It's one thing to be friends with your career. It's another thing, that's a spiritual metaphor, it's another thing to be friends, it's one thing to be friends with your career, it's another thing Um, You know, if you think about what friends, you spend a lot of time together, right? Good time together, good and bad times together, right? Um, Intimate time together even. But it's another thing to sleep with your career. It's another thing to sleep with your job, metaphorically speaking, right? It's another thing to go to bed with these things. It's another thing to say, this is what makes me me. This is what makes me feel good about myself. This is what makes me feel significant about myself. This is what makes me feel worthy like a human being when in actuality it's making you less of a human being. It's going to make you feel unworthy. That's the nature of these other things. It's going to drive you into the ground with labor and anxiety and fears and you're going to lose yourself until you understand this image. Until you understand this aspect of what you were made to be, what God wants for you, what God wants from you, and what God seeks with you, the relationship that he seeks with you, what you were designed for, you will not understand the nature of sin. You're a prostitute. That's what God is saying here. Now, that was the longest image. The second is this lamb. God's solution to our brokenness is this lamb. Now, um, you have this prostitute, human being, and in, in this image, at least, you're seeing this prostitute as a woman. And then you see the bride is a human being. Obviously, you're seeing that the bride in this image is most, I mean, most definitely a woman. But then in between the prostitute, uh, several verses down, and the bride, you have this lamb, an animal. It kind of seems weird, this mixed metaphor of animal and human. And what's going on here? Um, 
But really what uh, the text is saying is, and it's very simply laid out, the only way you can get from becoming a prostitute to a bride is to go through the lamb. That's really what the metaphor is saying. That's what this whole, that's what, what this whole text is saying. What is a lamb? A lamb is a sacrifice. A lamb is a sacrificial animal, a weak animal, a broken animal that would be sacrificed in its brokenness. God is saying the only thing that's going to cure us, the only thing that's going to cure our adultery, or cure our prostitution, turn us into brides who are perfect and holy and clean is the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, this lamb of God. John the Apostle wrote this. John the Apostle wrote uh, several books in the Bible. One of the books that he wrote was the Gospel According to John. And, uh, and since he wrote the book of Revelation, you're going to wrap up these plot lines. You've got you to gotta go back to when John, the Apostle John, talks about a wedding because he's talking about a bride here. So in Revelation 19, you can't really fully understand it without understanding the imagery of this, this book in John chapter 2, very beginning of, this, of John, John's Gospel. You have this uh, narrative of Jesus and his mother, and probably with other people, and they're probably going and attending um, uh, close friends of their, a wedding of a, a good friend of theirs. And at this feast, there's this big feast, and these feasts took days back then to c- celebrate. These ancient feasts took days, and there's lots of food and lots of wine, and Jesus is there, and wine, was, uh, wine represented joy, and wine represented status. Wine represented this overflowing joy and status, so you had to have an abundance of wine at the wedding to keep this party going for five to seven days. It's a very, very long party. And the mother runs up to Jesus and says they've run out of wine. We have a social crisis because the reputation of this family, the reputation of the person who's working the wedding is at stake. And if, if legally, that person can be sued. Um, this person can be shamed in this type of culture. Uh, we have to understand that. The wine represents joy. And Jesus responds, and he responds very peculiarly. He says, it's not my time. And really what he's saying there, he's, whenever you see that phrase, it's not my time or it's not my hour, you, he's always talking about his death. Now, I'm sure Jesus said a lot of unusual things to his mother, but that is most unusual because really what you're seeing here is Jesus' mother is running up to Jesus and saying, quick, these people have run out of wine. Do something about this. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die. It's very, very unusual. What is he talking about? And the only way to make sense of this is to understand that Jesus is a single man. You have to remember, Jesus is a single man. And what do single people do at weddings? Last, you know, we've just gone through a summer, so some of you have attended some weddings. And at weddings, what do you do? You sit down, and you see the decor, you see the ambiance, and you, and you look at every different component of the wedding, and you sit at the reception, and you look at all the different components of the reception, and you gush at certain things. And you say, oh, it's so sweet. And all the children that are walking up during the wedding, you look at all these aspects and how beautiful everything is, and you can't help. Single people at weddings, most single people at weddings, what they do is they say, you know what, I'm going to do this at my wedding. You know, or, oh, I'm not going to do that at my wedding. Oh, okay, this person proved the point that I shouldn't do this at the wedding or something like that. You start to critique and you start to think about your wedding. And there are probably a lot of people who go to weddings and, who are single and say, you know, uh, you know, I wonder what my wedding day is going to be like. And Jesus is no different. Now, how do you know that Jesus was thinking about that? All through the Bible, in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all through the Bible, in fact, Not only do you see the love theme of God and his relationship with people, but you see the bride theme. You see the bridegroom theme. So it's very only fitting that Jesus comes and the first miracle that he performs is at a wedding. Jesus has been setting this up all through history and now here he is and he's thinking about his wedding. God has finally revealed the true bridegroom that will come to his people. And he says, I want my people to be my bride. 
He's proclaiming himself to be the bridegroom. And you know what he's claiming? At this wedding, the wine is run out, the joy is run out, the joy is dying. And he says, no, it's not my time to die yet. I know that this joy is dying here, and it's been dying for a very, very long time. It's dead, but it's not yet my time to die. Yes, there's no, you know why? Because you can't have a wedding in this context without wine. So it's dead. But for my bride to be mine, for my bride to come to me, for my bride to be in bed with me, for my bride to fall into love with me and drink this cup of joy, I will have to run out. I will have to die. Now, that's the reason why Jesus says two things before he's about to die. Before, on the night he was betrayed or before he was betrayed, the first thing he says, this wine is the cup of my blood. In other words, what he's saying is, men, I'm going to run out soon. Brothers, I'm going to run out soon. I want you to remember that it was for you. You will never be able to have joy. You will never be able to drink with me again unless my blood and my joy run out. This wine is the cup of my blood. That's what he says, right? Um, Then later on at the Garden of Gethsemane, He's praying and he says, Father, let this wine, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath, the cup of justice. He says, let this cup pass from me. The punishment that we all deserve for our adulteries. He says, I know that I'm holding this cup and I'm about to drink it, but will you let it pass from me? But then he says, it's not my will. Yours be done. Meaning, yes, I will drink it. I will drink all the adultery of our people. My bride who has run from me, I will, I will drink that adultery. And so uh, he says, in order for you to drink the cup of joy, the only way that you can drink the cup of joy, the only way that you can fall into Jesus' arms, the only way that you could become his bride is that Jesus has to go to the cross to drink your justice. The Bible's filled with these prophecies. This is not one place or two places. The Bible, and it culminates in this book of Revelation. The only way that we can go from being prostitutes for all of our adulteries, the only way we can say, who can say, okay, you're a prostitute? The very nature of being a prostitute is that you've given yourself so many times after a while, you tell yourself, you know, that what's the point of even going back? I've already been tainted, right? In fact, that's what sometimes enables us to keep going back. Unless someone comes to you and says, behold, I've taken all all your sins away. So stop lying and saying that you are a prostitute because you are not. You are my wife. You are denigrating our marriage by calling yourself something that I have cleaned you of and you are not. That's why Jesus says you must be reborn because sometimes all of our guilt and all of our memories and all the things that we've done and everything that we are, it's, we're born into this. We say, this is who I am. Unless someone says, but I will make you reborn. You have a new life, and that life is with me. Isn't that an amazing image? What, a, what an amazing Christ. I mean, that is an amazing image, right? The Bible's filled with prophecies like this. The only way that our hearts, I mean, does that get you? The only way that our hearts can be recaptured by the love of our true spouse is to see that our punishment has been wiped away. And Jesus had then to be on the cross. In order for us to lie with him, Jesus had to hang on the cross. I guess the only way that we could hang with him is for Jesus to hang on the cross. The only way that we can drink the cup of joy, Jesus had to drink the cup of wrath. Jesus was thinking about his own wedding. 
And in a wedding, you have costs. In a wedding, you have time. Relationships are costly. Relationships take time. Jesus says, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to pay every price. And you know what he does on the cross? He pays the ultimate cost. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm experiencing life without God. I'm experiencing from society, and I'm Jesus saying, God has forsaken me. Now the violence, now the cruelty I'm experiencing in full. The center of my affections is God. My God, he says, my God, my God. He is the center of my worship, the center of my affections, and yet he has left me, he has abandoned me, he is, I am devastated by this. This is the ultimate nightmare to be separated from a life of joy, and so I am joyless. I am broken. My heart has been broken because my love has left me. And yet, do you know, I mean, just look at the words. He didn't say, you, you. That's not what he said. He said, my God. He's still calling God his God. You are still the center of my worship. And in my obedience and in my submission and in my love for you, no matter what the suffering, no matter what I endure, I will take it. And do you know, Isaiah, and there are other places in the Bible that talk about Jesus doing that, and he wasn't doing it like, oh, look at me, pity me. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, more. Give it to me. I want it all. More. Give it to me. Make sure you give me every last drop of this cup because you will not be able to taste that joy until I take every last drop. Because if you didn't take every last drop, then evil still wins. Sin still wins. So he says, I need to drink it. And then he said, are you done yet? Then I'm going to squeeze every last drop. And so he's hanging there until the blood is just pouring out. The brokenness is there. He hung there for hours and hours. God has departed from him. It was so bad. Things got dark. Earthquakes were rumbling. They said tombs were opening up. The temple curtain had tore, and he's still there. And then he says, it's done. I've paid the price for this wedding. I've paid it in full. That's the love of Christ. That's the beauty of Christ. That is the cost that he's paid. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The result is, I'm going to go through this very quickly. The result is, we're the bride. As one body, we are the bride. If you want to be a good husband, you say, oh, I'm, such a, I'm not like that. You've got to learn to be a bride of Christ. The reason why you're not a good husband is because you're holding on to things that are more important than the people who are important to you. That's why. You're holding, some of you are holding on to guilt. And as a result, you're not being a good bride because that has become so overwhelming in your life that it's separating and creating distance between you and God. And when that happens, your view of yourself and other people is skewed. Some of you are holding on to just other things. You're pursuing other things because you think those are the things that are going to give me significance and joy and pleasure. And you're driving over that bridge and it's going to collapse. Jesus says, I need you. I want you as my bride. This is the price that I'm willing to pay for you. All these other things will not pay that kind of price for you. They will make you pay the price. And some of us are feeling that. And we're tired. Oh, when I look at our congregation, we're tired. We are so tired. I'm tired. Right? How do you work it out? There are some very quick things that what it means to be a bride. First, it's legal. In every other culture, Let's say you're a woman, you know, um, it could go the other way, but let's say you're a woman, you know, 
um, and you're destitute, you're poor, uh, uneducated, um, and you're unattractive. And this man comes to you and says, I love you, I want to marry you. And you marry him and you realize he's incredibly rich, unbelievably rich, incredible status. And so when you marry him, what happens? By nature, all of a sudden, his money becomes your money. By nature, that's what happens, right? And, and uh, we look at that, we say, that's a scary thing. But in actuality, that's a be- look, at, that's beautiful. You know, you did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to get it. And yet it becomes yours. When Jesus Christ becomes your bridegroom, not only does his status and his wealth come to you, right? Not only does he, does, do those things come to you, but his righteousness comes to you. You are holy. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. The Bible says you're a sinner. But when you marry Jesus Christ by faith alone, when you say, Father, what you're saying is, Father, accept me, not because, not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what he's done, it comes to me. That's what you're saying, number one. Number two, it's all-encompassing. When you get married, for those of you, and I hope I don't scare anybody from getting married, okay, but when you get married, your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. Your time is not your own. Your money is not your own. I mean, even the most sacred part, you know, even your bathroom is not your own when you're in it, okay? You know, you, you can't spend time alone, quiet, and peace. Maybe you're reading a magazine. Boom, 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 boom. You're in there! You know, that happens, right? Or your bed is not your own. You know, some of you like to roll around in your bed a lot. You know, I'm a kind of a still sleeper, but some of you like to roll around in your bed. They're now your rolling around is cut in half, okay? That's the reality, right? Your bed ain't your own right? It's all-encompassing. If you're even slightly late after you get married, if you're even slightly late coming home, your wife's going to call you and say, where are you? Where are you? Right? Now, as a single man, you had no accountability, you know? There's no accountability, and you can, do, you can come as late as you want. But when you're married, and you're like, uh, there's a pattern of you coming home a certain time, and if you don't, one day you skip that pattern, maybe you were running an errand. You know, maybe you're picking up dry cleaning. Maybe you got a flat tire. Your wife's going to say, where are you? Come on. Men, husbands, do the same thing, right? You know, your wife doesn't come home after a certain hour, and you're like, where the heck is she, right? Where are you? You're, even your time is not your own, you know? You can't say, well, I, you know, you can, well, you can say this, but hey, I stopped. I decided to grab some drinks with friends. Um, uh, I'm gonna, I'll be home when I come home. No, <laughs> there's none of that. Um, when you're married, you have to tell your st- spouse everything. Your spouse knows everything, every detail. You have to check with your wife a lot of times. And it's not a bad thing. It's because your marriage, what it means is it's all-encompassing. Your marriage affects everything. What God is saying is you can't just put me as one of your other relationships in your life. This marriage, this relationship is all-encompassing. I'm not just a part of your life. I must influence and impact every area of your life. By the way, if you're a prostitute, there is no legal status you know, a prostitute sleeps with a rich man. That doesn't make her rich. A prostitute uh, is, uh, does not have an all-encompassing relationship with anybody she is in relationship with or he is in relationship with. Right? That relationship doesn't impact every area uh, of their lives. Third, um, it's intimate. There's touch. There's movement. There's depth. It's intimate. There's contact. The love floods your heart and floods every part of your life. 
and you just pour out so there's touch. That's marriage. It's not give and take. It's not give and take. You can't take inventory. It's touch. It's connection. It's commitment. That's what it is. Fourth, oh, it bears fruit. Romans chapter 7 says, you know, if you put yourself in the hands of Christ, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear much fruit. You know what that means? If you have marriage, if you have a marriage on paper, but there's no touch, and it's not all-encompassing, and it's not even legally, the legal benefits don't even transfer over. If those things aren't happening, then you're not going to have children. You're not going to bear fruit. You know, if there's no touch, you're not going to have children. But if there's intimacy, you know, it's going to bear fruit, right? Uh, Romans chapter 6 says, do not offer your body uh, to sin as instruments of, uh, your body of sin as instruments to wickedness, but rather offer the parts of your body to Jesus as instruments of righteousness. The righteousness is the fruit. You're going to belong to him who has raised you, you belong to him who has raised you from the dead in order, in order for you to bear fruit to God. He says, in orders that you will bear fruit to God. That's righteousness. Here's what it means. If your career is not just your friend, but something you're, you're in bed with, spiritually speaking, you know, what's the fruit that's born? If you're sleeping with your career, you know what happens? You're going to become a workaholic. That's the fruit. You're going to become overworked. There's going to be strain and anger, sometimes depression, compromise. You're going to compromise a lot of things. You're going to come out of your design. You're going to start to compromise lots of stuff. Why? Because success, success, merit, award, pedigree, these are the things that you're in bed with. And then there's going to be loneliness and depression. You're not going to have time for anybody. Put yourself in Jesus' arms and you're going to know his love and you're going to bear fruit. And there's going to be poise in your life and there's going to be joy in your life and there's going to be a sense of what's important in your life over the things that are urgent in your life. There's going to be humility in your life. There's going to be generosity in your life. You're going to reach out to people that you never thought you'd be reaching out to. You're going to be doing it without a sense of superiority in your life. There are things in your life that go away because you were married to other things. There are things in your life that are going to go away. You know, gossip is going to go away. Malice is going to go away. Guilt is going to go away. All these things are going to go away. Put yourself in Christ's arms. Do you get that? Lastly, it's going to give you comfort. It's going to give you comfort. Jesus, you know, a famous professor um, once said that Jesus sits in the midst of all your joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you can sit in all the world's sorrow and sip the coming joy. There's comfort, even in sorrow. Comfort, even in suffering. Jesus sat amidst joy and suffered the sorrow because he saw the future. And as a result, you can sit among the worst sorrows and be glad as you look to the future because you will be vindicated, because you will be redeemed and renewed. That's what marriage does. Marriage comforts you. You know when you're sad and you're lonely and you're broken and sometimes you are just so exposed and you just want to hide When you have a spouse, there's comfort there. There's nothing like that. There's strength there. If you don't do that, you know, if you have a good marriage, then you better love Jesus more than your spouse because then your marriage is going to get ruined otherwise. If you have a bad marriage, you better love Jesus more than anything else because it will heal it. It will redeem it. If you put pressure on your spouse to be something and you're loving that more than Jesus, that person's still broken 
And so you're putting a lot of weight. You know what you're doing? You're driving that Mack truck over the bridge. You're going to actually ruin that person. And you're going to ruin yourself. And you're going to ruin your marriage. Only Jesus Christ can bear. Only he has bore all the brokenness, all the sin. And he wasn't a broken person. He can bear it. But he became broken for you. If you want to be married and you're not yet married, you have to make Jesus your spouse because that's going to make you chaste, you know, because there's lots of compromise when you're not married. It's going to keep you from really pining and desperate for the love of other people. And you're going to be able to get through periods of loneliness in life. Separation from God, that's what Jesus suffered. It's going to help you to get away from the loneliness. No matter what it is, there's only one spouse that will ever truly fulfill you. Do you really believe that? There's only one marriage that will ever truly fulfill you. There's only one feast that will truly ever fill you. And that's why the last part of this passage, it says, then the angel said to me, write. Don't just say it. When you record it, it is binding. It can be questioned it can be tested, it can be validated, write it down because this is true and it will stand the test of time and it has. Do you believe it? By the way, when you write something down and you send it to somebody to read, it's an invitation. It's also an invitation. It's written out. Are you going? You're going to attend the feast? The gospel is your invitation. Believing this is your RSVP the baptism, the communion, the coming to church, that's your RSVP. It's your way of saying, I'm coming. I'm there. I won't miss this. I'm excited about this. I'm going to prepare for this. I will ready myself for this for the rest of my life. Go to him. Eat with him. Oh, it's going to bring you joy. Even through the worst sorrows. Trust me, it will. Do you? Let's pray.